Amen. Thanks, Ken. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. How are we doing? Okay, very good. Enjoy. All right. Well, love to hear the real answer after service if you have time. Um, the good news is God is super interested in the answer to that question, how are you doing? And his desire is to meet you wherever you are today. And you may not have come into church with that on your mind, but I want you to know, like, God sees you and he knows you. And whatever your needs are today, he wants to meet you in those needs. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, my name is Jason Williams. I serve as the lead teaching pastor, which basically means more Sundays than not, I'm the one up here <laughs> preaching and uh, teaching, opening God's word. And it's such an honor to get to do that with you today. Um, and an honor to get to invite you uh, to hear from the Lord today. That song that we sang earlier, um, I don't want to miss a single word that you would speak. Um, if you're singing that today as a prayer, I want you to know that's my prayer for you, that you would hear from God today and whatever he has to say to you through his word. Um, and so uh, we're going to be wrapping up a series that we've been in. Uh, this is week 10 in 1 Peter. It's taking us 10 weeks to get through 1 Peter. Next week we'll start 2 Peter, and I think we'll only be in 2 Peter around five weeks. Um, but this has been a, a really helpful series for me personally, and I've gotten to hear how God has spoken to you, even in your life in this series. And um, as we wrap up today, we're, all, we're really looking at three verses. Like you may have noticed as Ken was reading, like, whoa, you're done? Like just three verses? Like, yeah. Oftentimes, uh, we get to the closing of a letter like this, and we just kind of skip over these last few words. There's a few names mentioned, a few little things that Peter says, and we think, well, there's not a whole lot there. Let's just move on to the next thing. But what we're going to see today is there's actually a lot um, embedded in these three verses in that really all of God's Word, every word within God's Word um, has power, has something to reveal, has something, um, a reflection of God's voice to us. And so um, we are going to open these uh, three verses up today. Um, I want to take a minute just to read through it again. I know Ken just read it. We're going to have it on the screen. Uh, let these words uh, sink in and then we'll, we'll pull it apart. Uh, starting in verse 12, uh, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. So in a lot of ways, um, the beginning of the letter, the salutation of Peter's letter, and the closing uh, serve as bookends. He mentions grace and peace um, on both ends. And it's really important to remember who he's writing to. So as we've talked about week after week, Peter is writing a letter, more than likely from Rome, to Christians who have been deported and kicked out of town. Okay, because of their faith in Jesus, the Roman government has essentially exiled them um, out of the major cities into the smaller rural communities, hoping that they will just fade away or go away or, or kind of fade into the background and never be heard of from again. So those Christians who were still in the major cities like Rome were often involved in what we would call an underground church or a home church environment, kind of under the radar. We'll talk a little bit about these names mentioned here. I think it's helpful. So the first name that Peter mentions is uh, Silvanus. Uh, this is actually more than likely um, Silas uh, from the book of Acts. And then he's going to mention Mark, who was also uh, mentioned in the book of Acts. And that's really important because if you follow that story, 
uh, Paul and Barnabas were on missionary journeys, and they took with them Mark, or John Mark. And in chapter 15 of Acts, we find out that John Mark had bailed on them. Like, and it really, it hurt Paul. Like, it wasn't like it was planned. It really hurt Paul that, that John had left him and Barnabas out on the mission field. He felt abandoned by him and that he couldn't count on him. And so Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go on another journey. And Barnabas was like, okay, let me go get Mark. And Paul's like, no, 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 not him. Remember how he abandoned? I don't want him with us on this journey. Well, this is where Paul and Barnabas split ways and really had kind of a point of division there. You see it kind of play out in Acts 15. And this is where Paul picks up Silas, more than likely Silvanus here. Barnabas takes John Mark and they, they, they go separate ways. Well, that story kind of is left out, kind of undone for us in the scriptures. What happened? Did they ever reconcile? Did they ever get along? And we pick up hints along the way in the New Testament that they actually did reconcile. That was what was ruptured there through hurt feelings and being abandoned through the grace of Jesus was actually reconciled. And so here, um, what Peter is saying is that I've written this letter by Silvanus or Silas, meaning he literally either helped write down as Peter was talking, Silas was there scribing the letter, or he was just the one who delivered it. So Peter wrote it. It was like, hey, Silas, I need you to take this out now. Go find the little, the pockets of Christians who've been displaced out in Asia Minor and take them this letter. Let it be an encouragement to them in the midst of their suffering. So it was either written by, by Silas's hand or just delivered, but that's what he's referring to here. But then he says this, he is a faithful brother as I regard him. I've written you briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likely chosen, we'll come back to that one. That one takes a minute to unpack. Um, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. I was talking about this in the last service. We don't know um, all the details of whether or not Paul and Mark are reconciled, but here we are late in the New Testament in terms of time frame, and Peter is referring to Mark, not as one who abandoned Paul, uh, but as a faithful son. He addresses him as a son. And I thought that was worth noting as we look at what Peter's actually going to say to us in just a moment. But he does mention this in verse 13, she who is Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Let's just unpack that. So in the, in the Bible, um, when a group of people is referred to as she, oftentimes that's a reference to the people of God. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament is, is referred to as a wife or a she. Um, in the New Testament, the churches, the local churches are referred to in that way, with that feminine pronoun, she. And the fact that it's connected to she who is also chosen, right, that takes us back to the beginning of the letter where Peter opens up his letter and says, what? I'm writing this letter to the chosen exiles. So they weren't just exiles, they were chosen and that word chosen was a reminder that just because they were exiled just because they were suffering didn't mean that they weren't saved that they weren't God's people and so here at the end of the letter Peter's like hey I want to tell you somebody else want to say hello but it's coded and we understand why because of the persecution that was going on and so the, the Babylon is a reference more than likely to a major Roman city like Rome itself more than likely Peter is writing this from the underground church to these small pockets of Christians who've been displaced and persecuted and deported and, and encoded here in this letter. He's like, oh yeah, some other people told me to tell you hello. The Christians who are still here with me in Rome, who are also chosen. She who is chosen, 
Babylon, this church here in Rome with me, also wants you to know they're thinking about you. And they greet you as well. Now, in the middle of all this closing is this phrase that we're going to spend time on. When he, Peter says, here's what I've done. I've written you this letter. It's a brief letter. I've written this letter to exhort you and to declare some things to you. And here's what I'm declaring. That this, whatever, we'll talk about what this is. This is the true grace of God. Whatever I've written in here is going to unveil to you what the true grace of God is. And then this final word of instruction, stand firm in it. So whatever the true grace of God is, this letter was written to serve you well by encouraging you and exhorting you to stand firm in it. If you're you know, new to church and maybe haven't been around churchy words and you hear grace, you may not really know what that means. So I'm just going to unpack it for us. Even if you've been in church your whole life, it needs to be unpacked. So when you hear grace, what you need to think of is an unmerited favor or an undeserved gift. Okay? So we have, we experience grace, hopefully, in different ways all throughout our lives. So when a parent, the simple uh, illustration would be when a parent gives to a child a gift that they don't deserve, it would be grace. If the child has earned it, it's more of like a paycheck, right? If you've done your chores, you get your allowance. But if I give you something that you don't deserve, that's grace. And so we can experience grace like in our homes, with our parents. Um, I'll say this, if you're a parent, you've experienced grace from your children. <laughs> yeah, our children think we're amazing when we're not. That's unmerited favor, right? Our children give us grace. Maybe you've had a great employer. You've been under leadership that was graceful and, and you've experienced grace in that capacity. So what Peter's saying here is not just generically, hopefully you've experienced grace. He's saying, hey, no, I'm, I've written to you that you might know the true grace of God, a specific grace, a grace that can only be connected to God himself, a grace that you can't get from mom and dad or from your kids or from your brother or sister, from your friend, from your boss, from any other human being. Whatever that grace is, that's what you need to stand firm in. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God and here's the instruction, stand firm in it. So much of what um, we're going to talk about today is closely connected to where Nick was last Sunday uh, in his sermon. And Nick did a great job last week um, of really setting us up this week to understand um, what this true grace is. And in verse 10 last week, um, we get examples of the true grace of God. So you think of grace this way from God. It's when God does something for you or in you that you don't deserve. Does that make sense? God does something in you, like in your life, in your heart, for you that you don't deserve. That is the grace of God. Well, if we back up to verse 10, listen to this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we don't have to guess about what Peter's talking about when he's talking about the true grace. Like, what do you mean, Peter? What grace is true? He just told us. 
He just gave us five examples of things that God has done and things that God is doing in our life out of his grace for us. So we're going to look at that together to get a better handle of what it is we're actually trying to stand firm in. So we look at verse 10 again. It's pretty clear God does five different things. Verse 10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you. That's the first thing. Now, what's interesting is, of all the words here, all the actions that God is going to do towards us, only one is past tense, and it's this one. He's already done this one. He's already called you. Let's think about that for a minute. In the modern-day church context, we will use that word called, and, and what we mean by it is like a specific thing in ministry. I feel called to play the piano. I feel called to lead women's ministry. I feel called to lead a community group. I feel called to serve in the, on the greeting team. That's how we generally use that word. But in the New Testament, most often that word called is associated with your salvation, associated with the invitation from God to you to be saved, to move into an eternal relationship with him. Okay, that's how Romans 8 uses it. Those who were called were justified. So we think about it that way, it's helpful for me to think about, like, Jesus teaches a parable in, in the Gospel of Luke about um, a, a guy with 100 sheep. You guys remember this parable? He has 100 sheep. One goes missing. He leaves the 99 to go looking for the one, right? And as he goes out, how does he look for the one? Well, more than likely, he's going out, rain or shine, day or night, and he's calling this sheep back to himself. Because we, we read earlier um, in that Jesus says, hey, I'm the good shepherd and the sheep will know my voice and they'll be able to distinguish my voice from, from any other false shepherds. The sheep know my voice. They know I, when they hear my voice, they know they can trust my voice. And so the shepherd goes out looking for the one and he calls to it. And the hope is that the sheep that is lost will hear that voice and go, that voice is trustworthy. That voice loves me. And the sheep will turn and go towards that voice. Well, now we, let's apply that to your life. If you're saved, God has called to you. He has come looking for you. He has called you by name. More than likely, he's doing that right now in this service. And what Peter is saying to these Christians is this. The first example of God's true grace in your life is that he called you. Church, when I became a Christian at the age of 15, there was nothing in my life that would have caused God to say, boy, I sure need him on my team. I mean, that one there is special. My life was broken. I had been abandoned. I had been traumatized. I had been all kinds of brutal situations as a kid. I was insecure. I was scared. Being up on a platform like this would have freaked me out. God wasn't just there watching me going, oh, look at that one. Ah, he needs to be a preacher. No, it was by his grace, unmerited favor, that he called to me. And it is by his unmerited favor he calls to you. What Peter's saying is the first example of true grace, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, it's already happened past tense. God of all grace has called you. Now he continues on though and everything else that he describes here that God is doing in our lives is ongoing. It's not past tense. He gives us four more things. 
that he is restoring us, he is confirming us, he is strengthening us, and he is establishing us. So we'll just briefly unpack these words to try to get our heads kind of wrapped around what God is still doing and how God's grace, his true grace, still shows up for us. Like how God's grace is actually showing up for you right now in this place where you sit. So let's look at this, this first word, restore. If you just look in a definite, like a, a dictionary at this word in the Greek, it means to mend or to create. Most of these words that Peter chooses to use, and it's no surprise he was a fisherman, were actually um, industry words that were used to describe how you would uh, repair a ship or a boat. And so this one means to mend or create. And the idea isn't that you mend a ship by putting a Band-Aid on it. So if a ship comes in uh, from being you know, battered around in the storms and it's got some cracked boards, you don't just put duct tape on it. You actually have to pull that board off. And you can't just go down to Home Depot and get another one that fits, right? You actually have to go out and cut the tree down. And you actually have to create another board to put back on it. Okay, that's the idea here, that you're creating it new. Okay, so a- applied to our lives, this is so important. I want you to hear this. This is describing the powerful work God is doing in your life, not with duct tape, but supernaturally to restore you. And he's not just taking you back to when you were six months old. Okay? He's not just taking you back to, hey, if we could just hit reset and I could go back to 18 and have another run at this thing, I'm pretty sure I could do this thing different. Right? You're being restored, reset back to Genesis 1. Right? So you were born into a world that's broken. Amen? Have you noticed? Okay, it's broken. It's not operating the way God designed it to operate and work. Therefore, you experience pain and suffering and confusion and dysfunction. And, and when you came into this world, you brought with, with it some brokenness inside you. There was a lot right with you, but there was also a lot wrong with you. We bring into this world a sin nature. And so the idea isn't, man, if we could just go back and reset to day one, everything. No, we would mess it up again. If, if we could go back to when I was 18, even with the knowledge I have today, I would mess it up again. Just it would look different. We need to be restored all the way back to Genesis 1. So Nick talked about this last week, about how um, God is restoring us and working in us and redeeming in us and conforming us back into the image of his son through the suffering and the experiences. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul's writing about this and he's describing this taking, a, taking something off and putting something on. So, so think about that ship illustration. And in verse uh, 22 he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So that part of me that has deceitful desires, that's corrupt, like that that board needs to be pried off and removed. Take that one off. But then he goes on to say, and be to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, okay? Made new, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is referring to Genesis chapter 1. You don't need to be restored back to an earlier version of yourself. You need to be restored back to Genesis 1. 
what God created you for before the fall. That is the work that God is doing, listen, by His grace in you today. It's an ongoing work. Sometimes it's hard to see, and sometimes it's slow go. I like the, um, the graphics that the communications team, Jen and the team picked. Um, so for the next series, when we get into Second Peter, it's going to be similar. But you're going to see this little sprout turn into like a, an adolescent tree, sapling, with bigger trees in the background. And what I love about that is our spiritual growth looks like that. Like, you can't see a tree grow. You can see a tree fall. You can cut it down, but you can't see a tree grow, but you can see that it has grown over time. If you take a picture of it, and you come back the same day the next year, and you take a picture of it, and you lay it side by side, you're going to be able to see new growth. It's taller, it's broader, it's thicker than it was the year before. But if you just sit and watch it day by day, you're not going to be able to see it grow. And this is a beautiful illustration of how this restorative work is going on in us. It's slow go. It's a slow grind. Sometimes there are miraculous instant things that God does. It's awesome when that happens. But most of the work that God seems to be up to in our lives is slow over time. He is restoring us. Not only that, He is confirming us. This is an interesting word. Um, it means to support something or to like add something immovable. Okay, so if I had a fence post up here and it was leaning and I tried to straighten it and it was just wobbly, if I straightened it and then I set another one on an angle and attached it, this would be what, what's being described here. I'm adding something static and immovable to make something that was formerly wobbly now firm. So in a ship, if it comes in and a part of the ship is kind of wobbly or loose, it would be whatever they would add to the ship that's static, that's immovable, that would firm up the piece that's moving. So we, we gravitate towards things in our life, hoping they will be immovable for us. Right? We lean on things, hoping they won't move. Some of us do this with relationships. You ever leaned on a friend who moved on you? It hurts, doesn't it? You ever leaned on something to bring you comfort and in the end let you down? Well, this is describing the grace of God like that, that post that you wedge up against the one that's wobbly saying that the true grace of God will actually confirm you or firm you up, keep you from moving. Not only that, the true grace of God strengthens us. He mentions this, the idea of being made stronger. So not only am I given something really strong to lean against, he's actually working in me, making me stronger. So I'm not just a wobbly fence post forever. He's like working on me to firm me up and make me stronger. And then the last word is establishing us, which means to lay a foundation. This is really cool. Now, it doesn't make sense to me as a builder. Because as a builder, once the foundation's done, it's done. We build everything up. The only, thing we can re the only way we can redo the foundation is tear everything down, scrape it, tear it out, and start over. But the work that God's doing in our lives, right, he's working on us, restoring the foundation, even though... I'm 46, about to be 47 years old. He's working in you at the earliest parts of your life, the earliest parts of your story, the foundation of who you are. He's working on that. 
and he's laying a new foundation in your life. Now let's talk for a minute about how this works, okay? I want this to be as practical as possible for us. And before we can talk about the how, really we need to talk about the who. Who is doing this? I don't want you to walk out of here today thinking, oh my gosh, I need to, I need to spend time with that guy on stage. That's how I'm going to get all this in my life. I hope that's not the message you hear. Because the who is really important. And the same who that's doing this in you, I like that, is also doing it in me. You don't need me. You need the one who's working in me. And so here's the who behind it. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, uh, Paul is writing a letter, kind of like Peter's writing a letter, and he describes this process this way. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's referring to is the work of the Holy Spirit in every believer. If you have already been called, invited by the voice of God into an eternal relationship of salvation with him, okay, that's already happened, then his Holy Spirit is working in you to bring something to completion. Now, some of us here today, when I say Holy Spirit, depending on what your church background is, you may be thinking a lot of different things. Some of you hear Holy Spirit, and you're like picturing people rolling around on the floor, and somebody's got some snakes over here, and it's just getting really crazy. You may have had that church experience. I, I didn't, but I've heard of it. Or you may have come from a church experience where the Holy Spirit is just really never spoken about, and if so, it's like whispered, Holy Spirit. It's like, right, the idea that the Holy Spirit isn't even part of the Godhead. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're meaning one of the persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you and begins this work. And what Paul is saying, what Peter is saying, that he who began this good work in you, he's not done. He's going to bring it to completion. I'm like, yes, finally. When is that going to happen? I'm ready to be fixed. Yeah. Whew. Let's get there already. And he tells us when. At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either you pass away and you move from this life to the next and you get to see your Savior face to face and in that moment, your work will be completed. His work in you will be completed. Or we live to be the generation that sees His return at either, either point. The work is not done until you are face to face with Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It kind of puts us now in a position of saying, okay, well then that's who's doing the work. How? This, this is the true grace of God. This, this idea that God called me, he's restoring me, he's confirming me, he's strengthening me, he's establishing me. That's the true grace. Now how do I stand firm in it? It's almost as if the, the gospel is saying, you who are weak, be strong feels somewhat like a paradox, doesn't it? No, 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 I need to be firmed up. I need to be established. Like, how am I going to stand firm when I'm the fence post that's wobbly? Does that, does that resonate with anybody? How can I stand firm in my faith when I seem to be the one who's wobbly, who's stumbling, 
who keeps falling. I'm going to refer back now to what Nick talked about last week. He did such a great job talking about how we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. If you were here last week, you saw Nick do this like multiple times. Like, okay, it's a great visual. So if we go back to verse 6 and what Nick preached on last week, we read these words. Here's the how. Okay? This is the how. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So here's the how. Here's how you stand firm in the true grace of God. You humble yourself under his mighty hand. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. And Paul gives us a real, real life example of what this looked like in his own life. If you're familiar with this passage, um, Paul is talking about some sort of weakness that was going on in his life. We don't know if it was like a physical ailment, depression, a struggle with sin. We don't know. He just he refers to it as a weakness. And he likens this weakness to a thorn in his flesh. Like it's that painful. And he, and he even says, I even asked God to take this thing away like more than once. Let's, let's just look at Paul's words together. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12. He says, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my what? My grace. Does that sound familiar? My grace is sufficient for you. Whatever the true grace of God is that Peter's talking about, Jesus is saying to Paul, I'm not going to remove this one. My grace, whatever that means, will be enough for you. Paul, I've called you. I'm restoring you. I'm confirming you. I'm strengthening you. I'm establishing you. And that'll be enough for this one. My grace is sufficient for you. And look at this next phrase. Jesus to Paul. For my power is made perfect in weakness. There's the paradox again. Be strong. How do I, how do I be strong? By being weak. By putting myself under the hand of God. And he goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Practically speaking, one of the most helpful things you can learn to do as a Christian is the practice of confession. And I know when we hear that, if you have a Catholic background, you only probably think about confessional. It's just the place to tell on yourself. Now that's part of confession, but it's so much more than that. Paul's actually confessing his weakness here. And we don't even know if he's talking about sin. Just telling the truth. It's what it's like to be me. This is where I'm at today. Here's my weakness today. It can include my sin struggles. It can include a lot more than that. This is where I'm scared to death. This is this place where I'm grieving and I can't seem to get over it. Here's this other thing going on and I'm just super angry about it. And, and it's all confession. It's all telling the truth about what is going on here. This, now, here's the thing. 
if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've only encountered human relationship, what I'm talking about is super scary. To place yourself underneath somebody's hand, that's scary. To make yourself vulnerable, to humble yourself and to boast in weakness and tell the truth, that's a scary thing. Right? Because that's the place where we get taken advantage of, we get abused, we get mistreated. That's scary. But God is not saying to you, you want power in your life? Come humble yourself underneath the hand of Jason. God's saying, no, 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 no. You want to see, you want to see power in your life? You want to have the power to stand firm? Humble yourself under my hand, the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself. Tell the truth. Confess. Boast in your weakness. Admit that you are powerless and you will experience power. Confess that your strength isn't enough and you will find strength. Hear the paradox there? And so Peter's instructions are this. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it by humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's how you stand firm in it. That's how you find strength, by admitting you have none. And then he ends with this verse here of instruction. I don't want to overlook it. I think it's important. Verse 14, the end of his letter instructs you and I to greet one another with a kiss of love and peace to all of you who are in Christ. Two different phrases. The first one's kind of interesting. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And we've talked about this recently. There's actually five commands in the New Testament, five different places that command you to greet one another with a kiss of love or a holy kiss, okay? And last time we talked about it, we spent more time, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. But the idea is this, that my love for you should be visible on the outside, okay? In this cultural context, it was like a handshake or a really, really sweet hug when they embraced to kiss one another on the cheek. So you've seen this on TV, surely, or maybe you've even experienced it. Okay, so that's the equivalent here. And so really what I want to get at here is this idea that God isn't just calling us to be in relationship of, of cognitive interchange and exchange where we exchange ideas and we just talk, but that we would love one another with all of our mind, with all our soul, all of our strength, and all of our physical body. And I'll be honest with you, um, for me as a, as a young Christian, I was 15 when I became a Christian, teenager, um, right at the beginning of the True Love Waits movement, this got distorted for me. Like, I was taught either directly or indirectly, you don't get to hug anybody until you hug your wife after you're married. And anything else, I felt shame and guilt and felt dirty, yet I got the Bible commanding me to do it. Okay, so here's what I would say. Not all physical contact has to be sexual. This is a spiritual thing you're being called to do here. If you're not comfortable with a hug, hey, that's cool. Handshake, high five. Hey, how about you stand over there and just give me eye contact? Whatever you're comfortable with, right? This is meant to be a blessing. But that's why when you walk into church, some of you do this often, you, know, you can't shake enough hands or can't hug enough neck. That's a, you're physically expressing, right, what you already think and believe. It's coming out of you. And you don't have to teach a two-year-old to want a hug. Did you? 
You walk up behind any two-year-old, scare them, and they're, and they're automatically, without being taught, they're going to look for mom or dad and run, right? And what do they want from mom and dad? To be scooped up and held. It doesn't even matter if mom and dad are bigger than the thing that scared them. This is the only safe place in the universe. Right? There's something about the way God designed us to need physical contact in a way that's affirming and loving. Just preaching the word. Greet one another. Let the love that you claim to have for one another be visible on the outside. It could just be the tone of your voice, your posture towards one another. It may be a hug. It may be a holy kiss. I have three adults in my life who are not my wife who greet me with a holy kiss. And it's not strange or weird or awkward because we both know it's coming. Now, I haven't kissed back yet. But that, that doesn't happen a lot. But I tell you what, I probably had 20 hugs today. And oh, how those hugs have brought me comfort. Now, you may need a hug today. And if so, you get to ask for one. You may want a handshake, a high five. Or I got a secret handshake too if you want one of those. Just come tell me, hey, I want the secret handshake. I'll give it to you. But the, the point is this. He ends with this. Hey, don't neglect letting your love be visible on the outside towards one another. You guys are in a hard situation. You're suffering. You've been cast out of the cities. You've been displaced. You're scared. You're hurt. Comfort one another. Don't forget to greet one another with a holy kiss or handshake or high five or hug or whatever it is. And then he ends where he begins. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So I want to wrap up the series with this brief little paragraph. Peter's letter ends where it began, grace and peace. In between these two bookends, Peter has made us aware of how this peace has been made possible even in the midst of suffering because we've been born again into a living hope and to an inheritance that is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. God is calling these Christians in Asia Minor to stand firm in the true grace of God in the midst of their suffering. He calls all of those who are weak and suffering to be strong by finding strength in what God is doing in them, not what they can do for themselves. This gives us hope, doesn't it? Knowing that even when we are feeling weak and experiencing difficult circumstances, God is still working. The calling is past tense. The working is present and ongoing. He is still working to strengthen us and to give us what we need to stand firm in this true grace. I want to end by just asking a few questions for reflection. This might help you tune in on the voice of God and what he's speaking to you today through his word. The first question is this. How does it encourage you to know that God has called you to himself? Like he's called your name. He's come after you as the lost sheep. How does that encourage you today? And then I want to think about this. What do you do with, with your weaknesses? What do you do with your weaknesses? Are you able to admit to yourself when you're weak? 
or did you grow up with this pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, I gotta figure this out on my own, don't ever ask for help mindset. I understand that mindset, I grew up in that, it served me well until it didn't. Until I could no longer pull myself up by my bootstrap. And I'm like, well, what's the next option? Are you able to admit to yourself when you're weak? When you're struggling, when you need something? When you need a hug? You need a prayer? You need counseling? And are you willing to share that weakness with God and others? Are you able to put yourself humbly underneath the hand of God by saying, God, here's where I'm in need? Are you able to come to your brothers and sisters in Christ and appropriately just tell the truth? Like, hey, here's where I'm struggling. I'm not asking you to fix me. I'm just asking you to be with me in it. Can you be with me in it? Can you pray for me as I'm struggling with this thing? Next question is this. In what ways have you experienced God's presence holding you up when your life has become overwhelming or unmanageable? Go back to the fence post. You have some of those fence post moments in life. So the idea isn't wait until you get wobbly and then, and then feel around for God. The idea is walk in relationship with God, right, so that he is always perpetually the one that you are leaning on and reaching out for. But can you think about some of those moments? You're like, man, I was in a really dark place, a really hard place, and I know God was there. How have you experienced him holding you up when your life has become overwhelming or unmanageable? And then this last question, do you believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life to restore, to confirm, to strengthen, and establish you? Do you believe that he who began a good work is actually working in you? I, I believe he is. I believe he's working in you like right now even. To wrap up today, um, you may want somebody to pray for you. If that's the case, um, we'll ask our prayer partners to be at the front. They're always honored to pray for you about anything that has come up for you today. If you want more time or up here just as intimidating and distracting, you can, you can say, hey, can we go to a prayer room? We have prayer rooms out in the lobby area, the commons area. Uh, they'd be honored to get to spend more time with you hearing about what's going on and just praying with you. Um, if you want uh, to talk with one of our elders or our pastors, um, we're spread out all over the campus, but uh, there'll be several of us out here in the commons and I have my lanyard on. We'll be wearing a lanyard. Uh, it says elder that way in case you're new here you know which one we are and you can kind of come up and say hey can I talk with you for a minute we'd be honored to do that um, so I want to pray for us now ask the worship team to come back out and just get ready to respond uh, to whatever God's spoken to you today let's pray together Father we don't want to miss one word that you speak because God your words bring life your God, God your words move us toward blessing God, even in these three final verses in 1 Peter, we found so much instruction and encouragement and so much we can reach out and take hold of. God, we don't want to miss one word. And so God, as your Holy Spirit works in us today, each one of us, God, I pray that we would be able to hear your voice. That, God, there would be within us this desire to be known in our weakness. God, to bring that weakness humbly underneath your mighty hand. And say, God, here's where I am powerless. Here is where I'm weak. Here is where my life is unmanageable and coming off the rails. And, and God, I'm bringing it to you. 
Father, if there's anybody here today who has never heard the sweet sound of you calling their name, oh, I pray it would happen today, God. You would call us by name. If somebody here today has never responded to that, I pray, God, it would happen even while we're singing, while we're praying, that that person would hear their name being called and by faith they would come running to you today. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.